Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor John Hausler. Professor Hausler earned his PhD in history from the University of Delaware and is also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Professor Hausler's areas of expertise include medieval warfare, the Crusades, and military history. Professor Hausler teaches military history at the Army Command and General Staff College located in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Dr. Hausler has written and edited numerous books, including but not limited to Seven Myths of Military History, The Siege of Akko, 1189-1191, Saladin Richard the Lionheart and the Battle that Decided the Third Crusade, Military Cultures and Martial Enterprises in the Middle Ages, Where Heaven and Earth Meet, Essays on Medieval Europe. And today we were discussing the very fascinating Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of Conflict and Resolution in the Middle Ages. It's a wonderful book, um, really comprehensive, covering all of those seven centuries where one gets a real picture of what happened, what Jerusalem was all about in those years, and urge all of our listeners and viewers, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click of a button, free delivery, nothing better, and it's all yours. Um, Professor Hausler, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Great to be here. Okay. Uh, just to begin, uh, what period, we said seven centuries, but what period of time does your book cover, and why was that chosen by you? The book covers the 7th century. Um, I really start in the year 614 and go all the way into about the late 13th century, including the book in about the 1270s, 1280s. And the reason for doing that, um, it was it was deliberate. I wanted to look at what I believe are the, the, the real formative centuries of medieval Jerusalem, where the, the major events were happening and um, you have sort of... Um, the, the most notable and important shifts in terms of events. Um, and also, I wanted to start after the ancient period. And that was a deliberate choice. Uh, in my reading, there's been an awful lot written about Jerusalem uh, in the ancient world uh, for, for obvious and understandable reasons, uh, but that uh, not much had been done on the early years in terms of getting that history out to a wider audience. So I wanted to start... Uh, early, but not too early. And the 7th century became a good place to do it because you have um, really probably the most momentous uh, events in Jerusalem in the 7th century after what had happened at the hands of Titus in um, in 70 AD. And that's the the coming of Islam um, to the city. And that's that's an early 7th century story. So I figured that was a, probably a, a good place to start. Uh, and then to conclude it uh, right before Ottoman rule, um, in, in the time of the Mamluks, uh, where um, where I felt that, you know, having gone on for you know some 600 some years, that was that was a, a good, comprehensible story I could tell. And that the Ottoman period is really, again, something separate, um, something that really deserves its own analysis and has gotten it in, in other works. And uh, so I wanted that sweet spot in between things that had been highly talked about. Um, and so I could center on the, the more obscure things. Okay. Um, so, as as you mentioned, emerging uh, Islamic faith, uh, just a little bit of background um, on that development. From whom did the emerging Muslims capture Jerusalem in the 7th century? Yeah, the Jerusalem in the 7th century, in the, in the early 7th century, is a, a Byzantine frontier city. Um, it is not quite at the very edge of the frontier with Arabia, but, but pretty close. And, um, and this is the area that the first Arabic raiders really start to range into uh, following the death of Muhammad in 632. Uh, and they, they start by, by moving northward, and there's some, some localized fighting that's going on in what becomes known as the, the Riddle Wars between the Arabs. Uh, and then eventually penetrations into... Um, the Levant in towards Syria, 
of these um, these groups from the um, the first caliphates of the first successors of Muhammad, uh, first under um, Abu Bakr and then under uh, uh, Umar. And those are really where you get the first uh, concentrated contacts between the Byzantine and this this new is Islamic world that Muhammad created. Um, and you have some, some fighting that goes on in the very beginning um, in the 630s, uh, which begins with uh, small scale raids, um, movements against villages and towns, and eventually full scale warfare uh, by the time you get to the year 635 and especially 636. Uh, so we're talking about just just four years after Muhammad's death. Um, very, very serious fighting going on in the region uh, between what you might call sort of an upstart newcomer to the world stage and Arabia that had had always had a significant population, but now was you know, part of it was seemingly united under the banners of Islam uh, and the Byzantine Empire, which is one of the foremost uh, political entities on the world stage at that time, uh, one of the heavy hitters that dominated the eastern Mediterranean region, lands in Asia Minor stretching around Egypt and the Maghreb. Um, and that, and the, so that's the region that the, the Arabs are penetrating into. And I should point out just beyond that, um, not under um, their control at the time, is, is the Persian Empire, the Sassanid Persians, which had actually occupied Jerusalem in the year 614. They had um, attacked it when, you know, fought the Byzantine garrison that was in there, temporarily taking control of the city, um, but it had been recaptured by the Byzantines. So, so what you're setting up here is a, uh, a principal power of the Mediterranean region, the Byzantine Empire, the, the old Eastern Roman Empire um, from days before, and this newcomer um, propelling itself forward with a speed and ferocity that had, had not really been seen from, uh, from any of um, the major uh, um, entities in the region up till that point. And so the Byzantines have to respond very, very quickly to these new incursions. Um, and uh, and it leads to a, an extended period of warfare in the in the mid to late 630s. This is an organized um, Islamic army, or or is it? Are they still the underdog taking the Byzantines by surprise? And and, and what's is there a strategic value to Jerusalem at this point, or is it just one of the cities that that's under Byzantine control and? You know, to, to take over from the Byzantines, it's just, you know, it's one city that you, you got to take. It's I would say it's it's a little of both. Uh, they are um, the underdogs to an extent that because they're they're new, they're newly um, fashioned. It's a, it's a coalition of of um, of some groups that have been recently undergone religious conversion. And so it's it's very new and nobody would have bet on them, certainly. Uh, we have correspondences between the early um, uh, Muslims and the Byzantines in which essentially demands are made. You know, we demand that you, Byzantium, you uh, convert to Islam and surrender your territories. And you can imagine the Byzantines sort of laughing about that and saying, you know, who are these people making these outrageous demands? Um, so so they are the underdogs. But what I would stress is that I think the scholarship of the last several decades has done a long, has gone a long way in demonstrating the um, that they are not an incompetent fighting force. Uh, they are highly organized, these Muslims. Uh, they have extremely competent generalship, um, and they know how to fight in ways um, that are effective at, at all the different levels of war, uh, from the tactical to the strategic. And so I think increasingly historians have become impressed with the uh, the military organization, discipline, and aptitude of these of these early Muslim forces. Uh, we know that their caliphs uh, are competent. They had fought alongside Muhammad uh, during the, the wars uh, between Mecca and Medina in the previous decades. So they had combat experience. And the subordinate commanders are very, very good. Um, so I think at the time, they, they're underrated, certainly, by the Byzantines, um, who have this, this, this long Roman tradition they can, they can fall back on um, and are, some, to some degree, surprised uh, by, by the Muslim aptitude. Um, and it, it gets particularly bad in 636 when they lose the major battle of Yarmouk, um, in which the Byzantine armies are just smashed apart uh, by by very competent Muslim commanders. Um, and so I personally, as, as I was reading through these materials, um, came away with the same impression that th this is an impressive military machine. It is in its early stages, 
but it seemed to have operated operated um, incredibly well. And, and in Jerusalem at that that time, Byzantines are are out. The um, Muslims are in. Obviously, you had a diverse population of different religions of different origins. What was that population like? And what was the the new um, Islamic policy towards minor, minorities, whether they were now Jews or Christians in Jerusalem? Yes, um, it's Jerusalem is small at this time. Um, we, we tend to, you know, Jerusalem is a very important city, has always been a very important city. But for most of its history, it's also been a very small city. And the um, the population certainly in the Middle Ages, never exceeded 30,000 people. Um, not, not that I or anyone else has been able to tell. It's, it's always been um, at the, that very small level. Um, and it is a diverse population in the sense that you, you do have um, Christians, Jews, and people of other faiths, uh, such as Zoroastrians, for example, uh, who are in the city and who are living next to each other. Now, what we think is that when the Muslims initially come, the, the population is, is mostly Christian Christian at that moment in time. And there's particular reasons for that. The, um, the wars against the Persians had led to a lot of acrimony. There's an accusation, um, and this is 20-some years before the Muslims arrived, that, that in the siege of 614, when the Persians attacked the city, that the local Jews were complicit in that attack, that they offered um, intelligence to the Persians, uh, and that they participated in the execution of some Christians. So those accusations are sort of hanging over uh, the city. And when the Byzantines retake the city under Emperor Heraclius, he essentially um, outlaws um, the Jews from the region. They're expelled from the city. Uh, they are formally persecuted. There's a lot of forced conversions and baptisms that go on. Um, and so the Jewish population is, is really uh, becomes minuscule, um, if noticeable at all, by the time the Muslims arrive. There's a story of um, Khalif Umar as he's riding into the city and he encounters this, this random Jew walking along the road. So we know they're in the environment. Uh, they're definitely living there, but the Byzantines had, had really uh, put the vice grips on them and, um, and were persecuting them at every step. So it's not, although traditionally a diverse city, I would not say it's particularly diverse by the time uh, the Muslims arrive. And in the agreements, when Jerusalem is transferred over, when the local Christian patriarch surrenders the city uh, to Caliph Umar, uh, there's an agreement drawn up called Umar's Assurance, in which there's some, some swapping that goes on of territory. And Umar agrees um, that in exchange for possession of the city and for particular Muslim control of the Temple Mount, he agrees with the patriarch that to not persecute Christians in town and to not destroy their churches and to not to besmirch their, their religious rights. Um, and if you look at the documents, Sophronius, the patriarch, he specifically requests from Umar uh, that the Jews not be given any rights in Jerusalem. Um, so in, in 638, when the city falls, there there is a decided bent against any kind of, of Jewish presence in the town, and it's agreed to by Christians and Muslims. Um, so, so the previous sort of diversity and tolerance withers away at that point with regard to the Jewish community. What's interesting is that Umar apparently changes his mind pretty soon after that agreement is written because we spot Jewish residency in the city just within a few years of its fall. And so what the scholars of Islam have, have tried to argue for and have, I think, made a pretty convincing case is that Umar agrees to this exclusion of the Jews initially and then realizes later that that's not a good idea um, and changes his mind. And then much to the chagrin of the Eastern Christians, the Jews are back in. And so you get this return to all three Abrahamic faiths living next to each other after it takes a little bit of a, of a pause. And, and during this period, how does Jerusalem become religiously significant for the Islamic world? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And that's also one that's been hashed over a lot in the past, really in the past decade, especially. Um, initially, Jerusalem appears to have had very little meaning uh, to the Muslims. But then 
swiftly after adopts new meaning as the as the Qibla, as the direction of prayer. Um, it goes from being a city which, um, as, as many have pointed out, is not actually named in the Quran. It's referred to um, the, the future Alaska will be referred to, referred to as the farthest mosque, but it doesn't Quran doesn't actually name uh, Jerusalem as a holy place, but the Hadith certainly do, the traditions of Muhammad. And on those traditions, what we know is that the original Muslim direction of prayer was towards the city of Jerusalem. So for a moment, it's very important that you have Muslims praying in that direction, praying towards the Temple Mount as the spot where Muhammad purportedly uh, landed and, and ascended to heaven um, in, his, in his night journey. Very soon after that, though, it goes away. Uh, we know that the tradition of praying towards Jerusalem does not have a very long shelf life. And before long, Muslims are praying towards Mecca instead. Um, so you've got this, this brief moment where Jerusalem seems to have this prominence. After that, it falls away. And then it's a question of, OK, how important then is Al-Aqsa? Um, and then, you know, Umar is going to build, um, fund the construction of the first mosque. Uh, very soon after, Al-Aqsa will be constructed. The Dome of the Rock will be constructed on the Temple Mount. And you say, well, OK, those are important Islamic buildings. But, but what do we mean by that? How important? Uh, historians of the 7th and 8th century have pointed out that even with the caliphs owning the city and even with the movement from the, the, the first four caliphs to the so-called Umayyad dynasty later and then into the Abbasid dynasty after that, which goes into the 13th century, at no point does any Muslim ruler make Jerusalem their capital. It, it never has that kind of importance in terms of a political place. Um, that said, it retains an important spiritual uh, consideration. And over time, as you move into the 8th, 9th, and then 10th centuries, the meaning of Al-Aqsa increases in importance. And there's different factors for that. One of them, I think, is, is fairly important, is a, a growing recognition um, of the Temple Mount's importance in terms of eschatology, in terms of last days, uh, because the Islamic conception of the end of the world, it does indeed, the, the final conflict will take place on the Temple Mount. And there's a, a structure called the Dome of the Chain um, next to the Dome of the Rock where the judgment will, will happen. Um, and so what medieval Arabists have been kind of teasing out of the sources is this growing recognition over the time that Jerusalem is really important in a theological sense. Um, so it begins as that, that sort of the practicality we're going to pray towards there. That goes away, it shifts to Mecca. And, um, and while Jerusalem will never eclipse Mecca or Medina in terms of importance, um, it, you have this multi-century growth where it begins to occupy a very important place in the medieval Muslim world. Um, and so it's really a story of, I think, of evolution of ideas and of presence in the city um, that is made possible by continuing Muslim occupation of the city. I mean, they once they get the city in 638, uh, it will be ruled by Muslims all the way up until the First Crusade. Um, and so when you have that kind of time on your hands, it lends itself naturally to a lot of discussion, a lot of building, a lot of thinking, a lot of interpreting, and Jerusalem rises in importance during that period. And during that period before the First Crusade, is Jerusalem physically built up? Is is, is the population increase? Um, you know, does it the, do, does it go back to the grandeur of the days of King Herod, who you know built you know magnificent structures all over the land of Israel? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't push it that far. Um, it, it's tough to it's tough to measure up to the great builder, right? Um, what I will say is that it goes through um, swells essentially. I mean, there are times where the city uh, increases, and and by this, of course, I I haven't said this, but um, when I say the city, I am real really referring to what we would call the old city today in modern Jerusalem. That you know that circuit of walls. Uh, there are times where the walls are lengthened, um, and the city expands. Um, to to occupy areas like the old city of David, to, you know, particularly south by Mount Zion, um, to build out the walls and to incorporate larger pieces of the city in. And then other times those walls are broken through and you have a contraction of the city. Inside the city, there's a lot of events that involve the building and destruction of certain buildings. So it's difficult to say. What, there are times where you might say, well, it becomes impressive and beautiful. 
um, which is great. But in the year 1009, the Caliph of Egypt uh, destroys the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, and so you have this this Christian foundation that was built up over over centuries and it's it's reduced to nothingness and then has to be rebuilt. Uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque goes through several moments because of earthquakes, um, simply natural phenomenon where um, uh, Umar's original mosque is destroyed. Another one is built. It's destroyed by an earthquake. Um, it's rebuilt. Here comes another earthquake that not only damages the, the, the mosque, but also part of the walls of the city. Um, and so there are those kinds of those those swells where it goes up and down and it's sometimes it's very, um, I would say, sort of complete. The buildings are all in good repair. You have a flourishing population. Uh, and then in other times, uh, things happen, buildings are destroyed and the population um, changes because of the, the changing landscape. One thing I write about in the book that I found interesting was um, at one point in the 11th century, things are getting dicey enough within the city that um, that one of the Muslim um, law schools decides to pack up and leave. And they, they say, look, things are just getting a little tough. We're going to move to Tyre. We're just going to move the whole school and the operation to Tyre. And they actually reach out to the Jewish yeshiva at the same time and say, hey, do you want to come with us? Um, you know, wh why don't we both relocate? Because Jerusalem is not a great place right now. And they agree. And you have this, this strange phenomenon of, of Jewish and Muslim scholars picking up moving to another city and transferring their operations. Um, so the city goes through periods like that, as well as with the, you know, the normal sieges. People, when they see an army approaching, they tend not to want to stick around, so they'll leave and go off to greener pastures. Um, but even in all of those, those swells, you never get a huge boom in the population. You are talking about shifts between, I would say, in this period, but you know, you know, 15,000, 22,000 people, and it'll go up and down, something like that. But there's never a moment where you just have this massive boom. And I think that another aspect of that, something, a question you asked earlier that I, I, I neglected to answer, Jerusalem really is not a well-placed strategic city. It's off the major trade routes. It holds very little military value. Um, in, in terms of where you would want to occupy cities to dominate territory, it's it's in the hills. It's not well watered. Uh, it's it's not a, a fantastic place that you would you would dream of living unless you are re are really into those those religious connections. Much better, much more attractive are cities like Caesarea, or Tyre, or Tripoli, or even places after the 10th century like Cairo um, that are these these wonderful bustling metropolises. And it's it's no surprise that that's where people want to live. That's where they want to hang out. And Jerusalem just remains kind of small and 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 off the beaten track. Okay. So, as you mentioned, obviously the, the first crusade. Who, who were the first crusaders? What was behind? What was the impetus behind the crusade? And what was their military strategy as they moved across Europe into the Levant, the Middle East? So two of those are relatively easy to answer, and one of them is very difficult. Okay. Um, in terms of who they are, um, we we don't have that. We only have the names of a, a couple hundred actual crusaders. Um, so putting a putting faces to the whole army is difficult. But we can say broadly speaking where these contingents are coming from. It's a an expeditionary army um, that we would call today, I suppose multinational in a sense there were no nations at the time but um from france from the holy roman empire from the low countries and southern italy predominantly from those four regions um disparate groups of people who have decided to go to war for god uh, who have decided to become as we call it um cruce signatus signed by the cross where you stitch a little cross onto your clothing and 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 dedicate yourself to a, a holy quest essentially um, and the idea is that these groups would come together and they do, they coalesce in the city of Constantinople. It's sort of a, one of their first rally points. They receive assistance from the Byzantine empire. And then the strategy is to march straight into the heart of, um, Turkish power in the Levant and take the city of Jerusalem. And there's been some argument about, well, is Jerusalem their only target? Are they also looking at other things? And and they clearly are. One of the crusade leaders, Bohemond, 
he never makes it to Jerusalem because he he chooses to grab the city of Antioch for himself. Um, and so there are these these lesser targets, but the the strategy is essentially one of um, of invasion um, and siege and uh, fighting battles where you need to, but it's it's occupation of territory. Um, and it's very clear from the um, crusade propaganda that's out there. The idea, the claim is that this is Christian land. Uh, this is land that was Christian under the old Roman empires. It had been taken away from um, from Christian control by the Muslims. And so this is a um, a move to regain land that that belongs that belongs to us. That's the idea. Conveniently forgotten in that is pointed out by by many people is that there is another people who actually had an you know an earlier claim to this land, uh, those being the Jews. And so in the propaganda of the piece, and, and it ties very much into strong theological uh, rivers running, really ever since the the third century, um, maybe even earlier, of this sort of uh, what I call the disinheritance of the Jews, which has to take place first. Um, the Jews no longer have a claim. Um, because of these these accusations of what was called Christ killing at the time, they lose their claim. Therefore, the land becomes Christian. Uh, so that means it, it belongs to uh, Christendom, and the Muslims are just you know the latest speed bump occupying that territory. It's time to go and and actually grab it all back. It's a very idealistic, um, religiously charged campaign. Now, so that's the who, and that's the that's the strategy. Now, in terms of why exactly they go, what the impetus is. I wish I could give you the answer, but there's something like 10 or 11 different answers that um, that crusade historians argue incessantly about. Uh, there is no consensus on what it is. There are dominant schools of thought. So for example, the I think still the dominant school of thought is that um, they're going because of Jerusalem, right? It's, it's, it's the call of Jerusalem, um, as well as the call with the so-called call from the East the Byzantines have have issued a request for military assistance. The emperor of Byzantium reaches out to his counterparts in Europe and, and, and offers them and says, if you will come and help me fight to defend my own lands against the Turkish presence, so to defend Byzantium, the capital of Constantinople within it, uh, then um, I will reward you. And then also, you know, you have the opportunity to retake Jerusalem while you're out there. Um, and those are those are the main reasons that have been given, but there's so many others. There's the cynical one that wants to say, well, it's greed, it's money, it's opportunism. Um, the evidence for that is is not great. There's the apocryph uh, the apocalyptic approach, which I studied. My dissertation advisor was very big on this, and so I'm, I'm somewhat influenced by it, that um, many of these Christians honestly believed that by retaking Jerusalem, they would bring about the final judgment. Um, and so they're, they're, they're on an eschatological quest. Um, other explanations may be that maybe they're not thinking about the end of the world so much, but about themselves and their own fate in the afterlife. So this is the uh, crusading as, a, as an indulgence, right? So if you fight meritorious warfare for God, you will be forgiven your sins, um, speeding your entry into heaven. Um, there is one school that says it's, it's, it's almost pure anti-Judaism. Uh, that really you can you can cut through a, a lot of these things by saying this is this is that disinheritance piece. Um, and the crusade starts off with pogroms against the Jews in the Rhineland. Um, and so there's there's a proximate cause for you um, that they're really doing this in this this kind of centuries old struggle um, against against the, um, um, the the tribes of Israel, the Jewish people, um, however they were conceived. Um, so those are some of the biggies, um, and there and there are others. Boredom is a great one. Um, you'll hear sometimes that the church had clamped down on local warfare in Europe, and it weren't wasn't allowing the Christians to to fight against each other, and they needed an outlet for their anger, and so they go on crusades because essentially they're bored. Um, there's there's a whole host of them. I, I tell my students, I say, if if anyone tells you there's one cause for the crusade, um, then they're they're being disingenuous or they're just ignorant. Um, and if someone suggests, is this a cause for the crusade? The best answer is to say, sure. Yeah, that that's a cause of the crusade, along with probably all of these other things. And, and how does this um, army, a collection of, you know, this United Nations uh, force cross Europe 
get to the Middle East. And as you described before, the, the, the Muslims were powerful militarily. How, how do they succeed? What was their strategy and, and, and how do they do it? It's frankly, it's, it's a wonder that they ever did. Um, and I think one of the lures of the first crusade, you know, there seems to be like, there's a new book on it every couple of years. People are perpetually fascinated by it. Um, I think it's, it's because it's so incredible that it actually worked. You're talking about groups of soldiers, contingents of armies, uh, that had no one clear leader from the beginning, what we in the army would call unity of command. You, you don't have it. You have several leaders who squabble amongst themselves argue and fight about the best course of action. Um, you have them taking different paths through Asia Minor and popping out on the other side after fighting battles and running out of food and getting lost and not knowing the way to go. Uh, they are, according to the Crusade Chronicles, they're betrayed by their Byzantine allies at Antioch. The Byzantines pull their troops and they, they, they pull some of their, um, some of their um, logistics and sustainment and, um, over time, the Crusaders find themselves suffering through tremendous deprivation. They almost starved to death as a group in the city of Antioch uh, in the winter of 1098. Um, they lose practically all of their horses at Antioch because they have to eat them for food. Um, and as they move forward, they are whittled down and whittled down from a group that may have numbered 60, 70,000 people at the outset. By the time they get to Jerusalem, there's probably no more than 12,000 left. And it may have been even smaller. Um, so you have this rump uh, from the original force that that's set out um, from attrition, from exposure, starvation, battle. Um, and then also the you know people desert. Uh, there's some famous stories of even crusade leaders who run away uh, in the middle of the crusade. It's, it's too daunting. It's too terrifying. Um, and they're also proceeding through this land without good maps and without a lot of local knowledge. Um, not speaking the languages of the locals and fighting against, as, as you noted, these hordes really of, of Turks, um, multiple Turkish armies who were, had been very successful in their own ways, who have occupied all of the major cities. Um, so the fact that they got to Jerusalem is, um, it's, it's just a little short of miraculous, uh, the fact that they were able to hold this thing together and then at, at, at length break into the city and, and actually take the city of Jerusalem against a, um, a a pretty well-stocked garrison that had been left there by the Egyptians. Um, so I don't know, and this is given the nature of the source material, which often kind of goes silent on issues that we would like to know more about. Um, we don't know the entire narrative of how they got there. We don't know what happened at every step along the way. We just know that they eventually did. Um, and so it's, it's amazing that the whole enterprise didn't fall apart uh, by itself. And you can see even from the out from the outcome of the crusade, once Jerusalem falls and once once the combat is over, most of the fighters go home. Uh, there's very few that actually stay in the Levant. And that's indicative of, you know, the, the same kind of problems you have on campaign. How do you convince soldiers to go and risk their lives? How do you keep them in the fight? And then how do you convince them to stay around to, um, you know, uh, create this this new uh, Christian land in the East. Uh, it's it's a very difficult thing, and so um, so I'm always amazed by the First Crusade. It, it should have failed at multiple points, uh, but it's one of those those odd historical occurrences where um, there's enough luck, enough happenstance. They take enough chances at the right time, and and somehow they got through. As you mentioned uh, in Jewish history, the Crusades um, decimated. Uh, Jewish communities, um, thriving Jewish community centers of, of learning that's still a part of Jewish liturgy today. Once they controlled Jerusalem, what was the relationship um, of the new Christian kingdom in Jerusalem vis-a-vis -vis Muslims and Jews? It's, it's pretty awful at the beginning, frankly, um, but perhaps not as broad-based awful as one might think in jerusalem um there's the during the sack of the city following the siege uh there were there was a massacre that was carried out um there's this again will i think will always be perpetually argued about about how many people died in jerusalem um but we know 
that a synagogue is burned down with Jews inside, deliberately so. Uh, we know that the Muslim population is largely put to the sword. And there's a moment on the second day of the sack where um, even women and children who had been given safe, safe conduct are, are butchered uh, on the Temple Mount. Um, and as the cleaning goes up after the, uh, after the sack, um, what we figured out is that um, most Muslims and Jews are who have survived are expelled from the city. Uh, they are no longer welcome to reside or even be in uh, the city of Jerusalem. Some of them um, stuck around. There's an argument that some Muslims stuck around as slaves for a while. That's been a little contentious. Uh, for the Jews, the ones who have survived seem to have been um, used as hostages, and they're eventually exchanged for money uh, with uh, family and friends in places like like Cairo. Um, and so they're they're spirited out. And we only know that because there's some um, letters from the from the Cairo Genitza. We have some Genitza documents that um, that talk about these individuals and, and arranging payments and that sort of thing. Um, but aside from those few souls, um, Jerusalem becomes a Christian theocracy uh, for, as far as I've been able to tell, about 19 years. About 19 years, there is only a Christian presence in the city. Now, I mentioned it's maybe not as broad-based as that. If you look around the Levant, there are Jews in other cities. The laws that were imposed that, that outlawed Jewish and Muslim residents do not seem to have been applied in the other cities. Um, so you see Jewish communities in, in Tyre. Uh, you, you see them along the Levantine coast. You even see them on the interior and in some villages around Jerusalem but not in the holy city itself. And that was a very deliberate thing. And that's, you know, you can owe that to a lot of things. That, that, that I think you're seeing the zealotry of these crusade participants, of the new um, ecclesiastics who were installed in office after the sack. Uh, they, they definitely, they do not want these people in town. The problem is, as I mentioned, that, you know, Jerusalem was never a big town anyway. Um, so what happens if you only have Christians living there? Well, most of the crusaders went back home to the West, um, the Eastern Christians are not exactly jazzed by the idea of living here because some of them had died during the sack. And soon you realize that if there's no people in town, it's kind of hard to run a city. So for those first couple of decades, there's no market in Jerusalem. There's literally no place to go and buy goods because there's not enough people to uh, participate in the market. And who's going to buy and sell? Well, the sellers are going to be the locals, um, which means you're, ta you're talking about Muslims and Jews who would normally be there selling things. And so after a while, the first detection I found of it, of, um, of people, other, of other non-Christians being back in the city was, it was in 1119, uh, where you start to see Muslims in the sources. They start to pop up again. You see them in the funeral um, for King Baldwin I when he dies. Apparently there's, there's Muslim mourners in the city. Uh, and then soon after that, they're changing the laws so that Muslim traders um, get their, their taxes and tariffs reduced uh, because apparently it was very expensive to, to, buy, to buy and sell if you're, if you're a Muslim merchant. And they, they dropped the tariffs, which told me, well, then they must have been in the city being taxed for, the, for you to reduce the taxes, right? So by the 1120s, Muslims are back in town. Um, they're back trading. I, I wish we knew more about how many are there, um, how active are they trading, and are they just visiting for the day? Like, do they have to leave at the end of the day? Do they have to go away? Or are they able to reside to actually take up lodging? And those details, unfortunately, are, are just not great. And so we don't really know. Uh, what we do know is that by 1130, Muslims are back worshiping on the Temple Mount, which is one of the most surprising things I found in the course of my research. Um, first, the elites, and I tell the story about a... Um, uh, one of the local diplomats who apparently knew the Christians had had an audience with the king was, he calls the Knights Templar his friends. He's worshiping right outside Al-Aqsa. And then another account that says by the 1140s, you have whole groups of Muslims worshiping right outside the Dome of the Rock to the south. Um, so so Muslims make their comeback steadily. Um, and it, this is only a, a Christian theocracy for it, maybe two decades tops, and it may have been less than that. Jews, unfortunately, are harder to detect. We don't start seeing them again until the 1160s. So you have to go a couple more 
decades after the Muslim return to really get evidence of them living there. Uh, and even then, it's the numbers are so scanty. Uh, there's a traveling rabbi named Benjamin of Tudela who writes this very famous itinerary where he visits all these places and and counts uh, Jewish families every city he goes to. So demographically, it's a fantastic source. He writes that there were only four Jews in Jerusalem when he arrived. Um, now, scholars like Joshua Prower, um, who have gone into that and said, well, it probably means four Jewish families, not just four individual Jews. So, oh, okay. Four Jewish extended families, but that that's not a lot of people. Um, and again, they're not purchasing property. They're not, um, you know, acquiring ter- you know, you know, um, houses for themselves. They're renting and their movements are, are highly controlled. But a bit more promising is along with that Jewish residency, we saw, so we've got the Muslims worshiping on the Temple Mount by the 1130s. It seems like the Jews are actively worshiping at the Western Wall as early as the 1180s and maybe even a little a little earlier than that. Now that is a hugely controversial and political thing that I just said. There are a lot of um, scholars out there who have worked very hard to deny that there's any Jewish prayer at the Western Wall in the 12th century at all. Um, and instead the way they would read the documents is that the Jews would be located on the Mount of Olives uh, facing towards the Temple Mount, but they're not actually on, you know, in front of Herod's wall. I disagree with them. Um, I think that's an ongoing debate that will go on and on. And and I, I probably don't have to tell you that that links into modern political controversies, because if you want to make the argument that the Jews have the right to pray at the wall, part of that is the historical component. Well, they have been praying at the wall since, and then you have to fill in the blank, right? Well, since when? I think it's the 12th century. Others want to place that later. Um, but for all intents and purposes, before the 12th century is over, I think for sure you have Jews and Muslims residing in Jerusalem, um, and they are being allowed to do so by the local Christian leaders, which means those laws prohibiting them have been, they're either, they've either been um, overturned or they're being ignored for practicality's sake, but you're once again back to that more diverse population. Okay. And and now um, the Christian kingdom comes to its end. Uh, based on what you said, it, it doesn't sound so surprising. You've got this motley group of people, some stay, some don't stay. It's kind of like uh, not surprising that you find that in 1187, crusaders lose control. How do they lose control of the city? Who takes over, and now how does that new regime, the new controllers, deal with Christians, Jews, and other groups? Right. In 1187, the city is lost to the um, the army of Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt. Um, they had seen this coming. The um, the armies of the what we call the Crusader states had been fighting against Saladin and his predecessors for some time. Um, and in 1187, it all falls apart. And the reason for this is that the the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem loses its field army. I, I very much believe it's, this is a, a result of, of military action. Um, at the Battle of Hattin in July 1187, the army of Jerusalem is, is essentially destroyed. Um, up to 20,000 Christian soldiers are killed. Uh, the, the leaders are captured or executed. Uh, the remnants kind of run off to the Levantine coastline um, and the army has is gone. And that army is the principal thing protecting the city of Jerusalem. And so once it's gone, Saladin can march on the city. He can besiege the city and take essentially as long as he wants to get in, um, and which he does. He does um, undermine the wall with um, they have what we call sappers. They, they tunnel under the wall and they collapse part of it. The uh, The local crusade leaders surrender and Muslim occupation of the city resumes. Uh, so for, you know, it's a long story of Muslim occupation of Jerusalem. It's only interrupted by 88 years of Christian presence after the First Crusade, less than a century, and the Muslims are back. Um, and when he returns, he um, reinstitutes some things in the city um, that have been traditionally seen as notable in terms of religious toleration. I tend to look at them as more of an uh, an, an evolution from what the the, um, the Christians were already doing. Um, very famously, he sort of opened 
the door to the Jews and, and, and invited them back, which is, which is a policy change, right? It's, it's different than just tolerating a Jewish presence. It's actually courting a community and saying, you know, why don't you return? Um, he just, he gives religious rights to the Christians who are still in the city, the Eastern Christians and Western Christians. Um, but probably more decisive is, is his move to firmly establish Jerusalem as a, um, as a Muslim holy city again, which means a lot of building of mosques, madrasa, um, all of them um, funded through, through walks, through endowments, so that they continue to operate um, the stripping of all, all the Christian um, material additions to the Temple Mount. So that means going into the Dome of the Rock and pulling down the, um, the statues off the walls and the paintings off the walls and um, getting rid of the, the altar and whatnot and, and reestablishing buildings like this as, as, as Muslim places of worship. Um, and so Saladin is really kind of that that critical moment. And he's been celebrated as doing it rather um, differently than the Crusaders did. He has a choice, um, and the Arabic sources testify that he, he considered the option of conducting a massacre just like they had in 1099, uh, and he decides to pass on that. Uh, instead, he, um, he accepts the ransom for the Jerusalem population and then sells the rest of them into slavery. Um, so it's always fun with my students. We we go down that road and say, okay, so Saladin's not as bad as the Crusaders, but I, I don't know that mass slavery is. It, it's a, I guess it's a. Is it better? What do you think? I throw it to the students and I let them kick that around as an ethical question. I also you know argue in the book that there is evidence of a mass rape um, committed by the Muslim soldiers against the Jerusalem population um, after the siege, which kind of gets skirted over by a lot of his biographers because it's an, it's an unpleasant thing to talk about. Um, but in general, I would say that Saladin comes out of it with a, with a pretty good reputation. And the, the general thought is that the city, um, which was sort of has traditionally been looked at as intolerant and not diverse, has now returned to its roots of being a place where all religions can practice next to each other. Um, that's the standard narrative. My, in my book, I, I absolutely challenge that and say, no, he's riding on the heels of 50 or 60 years of a very gradual return to that kind of pluralism. Uh, but he really does put the stamp on it. But Saladin is based out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point, you have a significant, at least Jewish population uh, in Egypt, in Cairo, that's really part and parcel of society. Um, physicians, obviously, to the royal court. Is there a Christian population? In, in Fustat, in Cairo at that time, that's also part of society. And hence, maybe that's that kind of thinking, you know, transfers over to Jerusalem as well. Yeah, there is. There, there is a Christian presence there. And I, I think you're absolutely right that Saladin is, and I would say not only, you know, he's a, he's a Kurd, he's from Mesopotamia. Um, he had experience in Syria before he went down to Egypt. And he becomes the, the Lord of Syria as well. I think everywhere you look in the Muslim world, um, you have lots of examples of the Abrahamic faiths living together. Um, and I think it, it would not be hard for him to say, well, look, it, it, here in, 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 in Fustat, in Alexandria, um, in, in Tyre, in Caesarea, in uh, Damascus, in these other places, you do have diverse communities. Now, is that his main inspiration? I, I'm not sure. But certainly that's a model he could work off of. What I what I do point out in the book is that I think Jerusalem's a little bit unique. If you look at other major cities uh, in the region over the centuries of the Middle Ages, you see much more intolerance of other religions than in Jerusalem. Uh, so, for example, in Baghdad, uh, I would not have wanted to be a Jew or Christian living in medieval Baghdad at various moments. Um, there are some times where it's not so bad. Um, but what I've discovered in my research, and I, I think I found the earliest example of this, the very first example of people being forced to wear distinctive items of clothing and jewelry to distinguish themselves from Muslims was in Baghdad in the 800s um, for, you know, uh, black clothing for Jews, uh, huge crosses worn around the neck of Christians like yokes that would bend their, their, their heads down. The same thing happens in Cairo under Khalif al-Hakim, um, you know, very um, 
purposeful identification of people of different faiths so that they could be discriminated against. Um, and there, there's a lot of that. And there's the subject of uh, dimitude and um, how Muslims treat conquered populations has been a, a huge and very controversial area of studies. Um, and what I point out is that I, I see Jerusalem as, as not that. Um, not saying it's an oasis of tranquil, you know, peaceful, diverse communities getting along. It's, it's not. It has its problems. Uh, but compared to some other places, um, I think the, the interfaith life is, is, is much better in the holy city, which I think is a very curious uh, notion because it, it, it's, it sort of goes against the way we want to think and think, well, in the place with in the city with the holy places, that must be where there must be, you know, the most strife. And I found that, that that's not necessarily the case. So it could be that he's modeling Cairo or modeling some other city. Um, I think there's a practical aspect to all of this. Um, if you want a thriving community, if you want a prosperous community with markets that you can tax, that you can control well, then you need to let in the locals. And the locals here are Eastern Christians, Muslim and Jews. Uh, it just makes sense to have them involved in the story. And after the Saladin dynasty, um, we come upon which group is now controlling Jerusalem and for how long? So you have for a long time, all the way into the 13th century, you have the um, Saladin's descendants, the, the so-called Ayyubid dynasty of, of Egypt ruling in Jerusalem. Over the course of Ayyubid rule, there are some very interesting transitions that happen. Um, because the Ayyubids themselves, um, unlike Saladin, who was this solitary ruler that everybody respected and everybody followed, um, once he's dead, there is there are huge arguments among his family as to who should have what. And you have one branch of the Ayyubid family ruling in Egypt, but you have another branch ruling in Damascus. And they are very frequent, frequently at war with each other as much as they are with the um, with the Latin Christians in the area. So Jerusalem gets tossed around a little bit. It becomes a, a pawn in the larger political scene. Um, at various moments, it's offered as a prize. So, for example, during the Fifth Crusade, during the 12 teens, um, the Crusaders are fighting in Egypt, and they're made an offer by the Sultan there. If you leave Egypt, I'll give you Jerusalem. You know, you, you can have it. At the time, Jerusalem didn't even belong to him. It belonged to his relatives from the, the Damascus branch of the family. And so it it becomes a pawn like a lot of other things um, in the larger politics of the time. I think undoubtedly the most interesting development during Ayyubid rule is the um, what we refer to as the Sixth Crusade, the coming of Emperor Frederick II to the city um, when the Holy Roman Empire gains the crown of Jerusalem. And that's during the reign of Saladin's descendants, um, where there's this extraordinary deal worked out in 1229 between Frederick, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Al-Kamil, who is the, the Sultan uh, of Egypt, they come to an agreement about the city of Jerusalem to spend, essentially split it between them, um, where most of the city remains in Christian hands and is ruled by, by Christians, although there may be Muslims and Jews living there. It's, 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 it's going to be um, dominated by, by politically by Christians. Um, but, the dome, but the Temple Mount goes to Muslims. Um, that agreement is is worked out where it's it's exclusivity of Muslim prayer uh, on the Temple Mount, uh, and they work that out as a a political solution between themselves. And um and and, and we may get into this further later, but um and I've argued that 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 deal essentially uh, forms the core of of what what we deal with in modern times when you're looking at divisions of the city and the, the so-called status quo. Uh, and agreements over who who owns what, who can pray where, um, that that sort of sets the stage for it. So, even in this time of a lot of political disunification and chaos, you've got these interesting interfaith accords that are happening. Of course, the problem is is that not everybody likes those kinds of arrangements. And by the time you get to the twelve forties, uh, you have a more zealous group of Muslims um, called the Khwarazmians who are cons who are um, essentially bought as a as a mercenary ally group by the Egyptians. And in 1244, they sack the city and they destroy all kinds of those Christian foundations and um, and, and and slaughter something like 6,000 of the residents. And so once again, Jerusalem kind of goes, hits this nadir uh, where the walls are gone, 
the population has been slaughtered, tremendous religious disunification. Um, and so it's it's a very tumultuous period, the 13th century. I'll add as, as one final thought is um, that the outcome of that 1244 sacking of the city is, is absolutely remarkable. The result of it is um, one of the least known, I think, um, uh, multicultural military alliances in history where the Christians, including the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, the Teutonic Knights, form a military alliance with groups of Muslims from Karak and, and Homs and Damascus. They form this multi-faith alliance to fight against these Muslim zealots. And you actually see, like, you know, before the army sets off, you see the sign of the cross, and you see baptisms, and you've got Muslim rulers, and, and they all ride into battle together, and um, unfortunately for them, lose against the Muslim zealots. And so it's a, it's a very short-lived interfaith alliance. Uh, but the fact that it happens at all tells you a little bit about the period, um, that, um, that, that these, are, these are pretty crazy times after the death of Saladin. And, and this takes us into the Mamluk rule. Is is that the how the book concludes with with that dynasty? Yeah, with the the Mamluk rule, because you have King Louis the Ninth of France, who we refer to as Saint Louis, the the only canonized um, uh, king of, of France, is a crusading king. He he fights on two crusades, and the first one is the Seventh Crusade, which he he directs from to Egypt. He leaves. Cyprus with a fleet and sails to the Egyptian coastline uh, and, and tries to fight his way towards Cairo. While he's doing that, while he's in Egypt, um, this is at the, the late, um, he um, launches a crusade. This is 1248, 1249, 1250. Uh, while he's there, the Ayyubid dynasty collapses and the Mamluks um, seize control of um, very, very interesting uh, political and sly ways seize control of Egypt, and um, and you have this the beginning of this Mamluk period, right? Um, and it's under the Mamluks that all remaining presence of the um, of the Crusader states is is wiped away in the Levant. Um, Jerusalem falls under Mamluk control. Um, the last Crusade fortresses and cities in the region are taken one by one by one by these Mamluk armies. The final one to fall. The, the modern city of, of, of Akko, Medieval Acre, um, falls in, in 1291 to Mamluk forces. And that's and that's all she wrote uh, for the crusading enterprise. Uh, that's that's the end of their um, their um, their rule in that in that in the Levant. Uh, specifically, they remain in Cyprus and Rhodes and in the Mediterranean islands, but they've essentially been driven off the mainland. And the Mamluks are very interesting because while they're doing this, they're defeating the Latin Christians on one hand grabbing Jerusalem for themselves again and re reestablishing Muslim rule up and down the coast. While with the other hand, they're fighting against the Mongols uh, who are streaming in from central Asia. Uh, and so the Mamluks are one of these, um, sort of a, not, I don't think they're written about nearly enough. One of these most, most capable States uh, in the medieval middle East who are trouncing everyone they come into contact with. And they're from where the under, Mamluks are from where they, 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 uh, they erupt out of Egypt, Egypt. originally. Uh, they're, they're slave soldiers who had been around Egypt for, for centuries, um, but they, they come out of Egypt and, and you have Mamluk armies streaming as far to the east as India. Um, so there, there's disparate groups all over the place. Um, and it's under Mamluk rule that Jerusalem becomes firmly a, a, a Muslim city once again, and it will not uh, lose that designation really uh, until you get to um, the British mandate. Uh, it will extend all the way into the 20th century um, as a Muslim city. But as I point out, even then, it, it's a it's a Muslim controlled city, but with members of all three Abrahamic faiths living and worshiping next door uh, to each other. And when the Mamluks um, give way to the Ottomans, the Ottomans actually confirm all of these religious rights in a series of decrees. It's where the um, the the absolute Jewish right to the Western Wall is decreed by an Ottoman um, Sultan. I mean, he, he, he draws it up in law and says, it's yours. No one will interfere with it. Um, and so that's where I kind of break off the book as I say, well, okay, well, we're no longer going to see shifts between the religions anymore. It's, it's a Muslim game now all the way until the 20th century. And I'm not a 20th century historian. Uh, so I had, had no desire to pursue the story all the way. As you mentioned throughout the discussion, um, uh, the phenomenon of uh, the three fates, 
um, if not getting along, at least coming to some kind of modus operandi of reconciliation, of a division, of whatever it might be. Uh, you, you write in the book that that uh, in the aftermath of the Six-Day War in 1967, Defense Minister Moshe Dayanus, credited by many for the for the Six-Day victory, uh, makes a decision and hands or keeps the keys to the Temple Mount in in Muslim control. Um, how do you view that historically? Uh, that it, it is a new precedent, or as you, I think, you have argued that it's really something that's found and it's it's a continuation of what we see in history, in medieval history. I, yeah, I I think it absolutely is uh, building off of the. Uh, medieval tradition. And I think you can bring it back. I mentioned Frederick II. I think that's where you have kind of a, the agreement in its concrete form. But I think you could even pull it back to the days of Umar in the early 7th century. This agreement of the concept that there can be sectors in the city in which adherents of one faith operate versus adherents of another faith. Um, that I think that is a trend you see. It it only really takes a break during those first two decades of Crusader rule. After the first Crusade, at, at all other times, uh, you have people worshiping sort of where they like in the city. And so Diane's action, I I just find to be fascinating. And I know it's controversial because there's there's arguments about what um what um Rabbi Garen said. When he was there, there's this accusation, you know, this is our time, you know, detonate these buildings and we can, you know, we can end this forever. I know there's an argument about whether he actually said that or not and what Diane's reacting against. Um, but if you look in Diane's memoirs, he's, he's, he's kicking back to these concepts of the status quo. Um, this is the way it has been. We're going to keep it the way it has been. And, and certainly there's some who can question that and say, well, Okay, that's the way it's been. Is is this the time to break tradition? You know, maybe this is. Maybe this is time to go another direction. But he seems to very much be keying in on 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 a heritage piece there. Now, what I don't know, and I would know more if I was a, a historian of the 20th century and could pursue these things. And I, I hope somebody would take this up someday. I don't know anything about Diane's personal education, knowledge of history. Had he read about the Middle Ages? Did he know about these? older precedents i i'm sure he knew about them the more recent ones um from the late 19th into the early 20th century and certainly knows about the problems of the 48 war and and, and the things coming before does he know anything about the medieval experience i i have no idea um i i hope somebody will will tell me about that if he did or not um but my contention is the book is that i i have a, it's in my gut that not a lot of people know much about that full medieval story um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't, and he was simply going off of more more recent developments in the city. I think medieval Jerusalem is probably the least studied and understood period of the city's history. Uh, the Ottomanists, the, the people studying the Ottoman Empire, have done an awful lot of work on Jerusalem. And obviously the ancient Jerusalem piece is, I think that's probably gotten most of the attention, right, um, from the biblical foundations and um, the depredations of, of the Romans, among others. Um, in relation to the city. I think with the Middle Ages, people know about the First Crusade, and Umar is heavily discussed in Muslim communities, and he and Saladin are seen as kind of these two founding heroes. Um, but between Umar, Saladin, and the First Crusade, I don't know what, how much is, is, is regularly known, read about, and talked about in the medieval period. Uh, these are not hot topics they're not um, generally, you know, people saying, I, I, I really want to bulk up on my eighth century Jerusalem history this summer. Uh, you, don't re you don't really get much of that. Um, so in my interpretation, I think he's very much acting as in a long line of political leaders who made a calculation that some measure of, of tolerance and sharing of holy sites is a prudent thing to do. Um, I think he's in that line. And just like Umar and Saladin and the Crusaders and everybody else, um, it's it's left. I have the luxury of being a historian and I can leave it to people to say, well, you tell me if that was a, a good idea or a bad idea or smart or unwise. I, I can kind of leave that up to the readers. Well, I think after this discussion, um, we will uh, 
have listeners and viewers who will say this really is a hot topic and um, urge them to again to go online and uh, uh, purchase uh, Professor Hostler's uh, Fall of Jerusalem um, over the seven centuries. Um, and again, the, the, we just touched on one period and only parts of one period. Um, a fascinating topic of uh, and avoided getting into any political issues, which is always good. Excellent. Which is always <laughs> good. It's pure history. We'll leave, you know, the conclusions, the political conclusions to others. And again, Professor Hofstra, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. It's fantastic being here. Thank you.